So I said we'll be uh, continuing on in this study of the names of God, and we'll be diving into this name, Emmanuel. The past week, we, we started to look at um, these names, really, as they're associated with, with Jesus, that he is the good shepherd, and then this week, Emmanuel. That name really only occurs uh, twice in the Bible as a name. The, the concept of God with us, or saying the phrase God is with us, is, is in multiple places, but it it comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and then kind of gets this fulfillment in Matthew, not kind of, it, the prophecy gets fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 with the name of Jesus. So briefly what I want to do is I want to um, look at this passage in Isaiah, just kind of hit some of these high points in chapter 7, and then I want to turn to Matthew and then come back to Isaiah 7 and see some of the things that we can pull out of that as to answering the question, you know, because God is with me, so what? So to begin, we will open up Isaiah chapter 7. And Isaiah is an incredible, gosh, it's an amazing book. It's so rich and giant. And in chapter 7, verse 1, we have this king Ahaz. And uh, if you remember in the context of this, the kingdoms had been split the northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah, and there was this series of kings that you can look at, First and Second Kings, the First and Second Chronicles, and get all of these. We know from those books that Ahaz was not a good king. He uh, was actually terrible. And so when um, trouble comes, we get to see how he responds and how the Lord responds. So Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was the king of Judah. King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So king of Israel, who is supposed to be on their side, obviously, and the Arameans are coming up to attack Jerusalem, but they couldn't take it. Now, in verse 2, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. So their, their brothers had turned against them and had joined forces with their enemies and were now attacking them. And their hearts, it says, that were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind, just decided of being blown around, not stable, not steady at all. They're shaken to their core. Then in verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, so the, the Lord speaking through his prophet, go and you and your son, Sha'er Jashub, which I think translates, my Bible has a note here, which means, uh, I can't remember. If you see it in your Bible, holler out. But Isaiah had all these sons who had these crazy names, and um, naming your children is really important. I'm not going to probably name my kid Sha'er Jashub, but Isaiah did. And it says they took him out to meet Ahaz, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, which is just super fascinating that they had all these names and places, real people, real time. And the Lord says to Isaiah, say to him, so Isaiah is coming as a prophet of the Lord to talk to the king of Jerusalem. Say to him this, say, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Why? Because those two smoldering stubs of firewood, these two kings, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the sons of uh, Ramalia, Aram, Ephraim, and Ramaliah's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. So I'm going to come in, uh, smash everything, and put somebody else in as, as king, which is how the ancient world worked. But God is coming up through the prophet Isaiah and telling this to uh, King Ahaz. Yet, in verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not happen, it will not take place. 
For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin within 65 years. Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. Ramalia's son. And if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So God is coming up and saying, their end is coming. He calls them smoldering stubs of firewood. Like they're burning now, they're out, they're smoking. Don't worry. And so in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So before he speaks to Isaiah and tells him to tell this to Ahaz. And then he comes and he speaks to Ahaz and he says, The Lord says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. So the Lord comes up to Ahaz and says, hey, I'm going to say these things. These things are going to be true. You're under attack right now, but trust me. Don't be afraid. And he says, ask me for a sign, either if it's to the highest heaven or the lowest depths. Like, go big, Ahaz. Ask me for something big. And you think back to Gideon. You ask the Lord for this fleece. Like, okay, we're going to lay the fleece out. If it's dry in the dew, okay, if it's wet in the dew, okay, great, laying out a fleece. The Lord is telling Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ask for a big one. And then Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds super righteous, but it's actually uh, self-righteous, and it's not doing what God had said. Because God come to, comes to him and says, ask for a sign. And then he's like, I'm not going to do it. And so Isaiah comes up and says, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? So I think Isaiah is kind of done with Ahaz at this point. And he says, will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, so God comes up, Ahaz is in trouble, then the people of uh, Judah are in trouble, and he tells them, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. I've got this taken care of. You're going to be okay. These people who are attacking you now, they're going to burn out. And then he comes and says, if you need reassurance, ask me for a sign, and I'll give it to you. And he says, I, I, I don't want to ask you for a sign. It just, if God comes up and says, ask me for a sign, like, go big, okay? Just, just go big. It's okay. So Isaiah gets mad, comes up and says, why are you trying God's patience? So in verse 14, which is the famous verse that, we're, that is in Matthew, he says, therefore, if you're not going to ask for something, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this will be the sign. The virgin will be with the child and will give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings who dread, who you dread will be laid to waste. And the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Okay. Now, when there's a prophecy, there are often... Um, a near prophecy, a near fulfillment of it, and then a distant one. And if you've ever been up in the mountains, when you see mountains back up on each other, you'll see, you think that there is one mountain, and you get up on top of one, and you're like, oh, there are more mountains. Like There's, a, there's a, a proverb in Haiti that says, beyond the mountains, there are more mountains, meaning when, you're, when you get up on something hard, you realize all that's in front of me is hard things, just more mountains to climb, right? And so this, this prophecy, and, and if you keep reading into chapter 8, the word for virgin there in, birth, in verse 14 in, in, in Hebrew can also mean young woman or maiden, an unmar- uh, not necessarily unmarried even, but just young. doesn't specifically necessarily mean virgin. Translators have come back in because of what is revealed in Matthew and, and translated it that way. But the idea being that someone's going to be born, and then we see what happens before he's very old, these things are going to happen, Right? That's what's happening in verses 15, 16, and following. And then we see in chapter 8, this, uh, this thing happens. So in the time of Isaiah, God enters the picture when they're in trouble. He comes to the king, and they're in desperate straits, 
and he gives them encouragement. He sends this prophet to come and encourage them with words like this. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because I'm going to take care of you. And then he says, go ahead, and, go ahead and test me. I'm going to take care of you. And of course, Ahaz does not do that. Isaiah comes back and says, fine. God's going to give you a sign anyway. This incredible thing is going to happen. And I'm going to give you a time stamp. You know, somebody's going to have a baby. And this is before this baby is very old. These things are going to happen. Prove it. It's going to happen quickly. Now, if we skip forward to Matthew chapter 1, if we just leave it there, we think, okay, that was cool. God says, this is what you need. I'm going to come and give you this promise, and you'll see it in your lifetime. But when we come to the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew, this is where the Word of God is just so amazing. It's the Holy Spirit inspires to write, and the, the, the Bible is just this incredibly complex, tied together, perfectly knit whole. It's amazing. So this is Matthew 1.18, which is a story we're all familiar with. It says this. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. This is Isaiah. Quoting, the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So as Matthew then comes back and ties in this prophecy that had been given to Ahaz through Isaiah and saying the real fulfillment of that prophecy is not that you, Israel was just in trouble in the past and their kingdom is split and they've got a godless king and he's there and you're under a siege by these people. That's not the real problem. The real problem with people is that we are dead in our sins, that we are separated from God because God is holy and we are sinful. And Matthew is coming in and saying, this is what is really going on. What is really going on is that the problem is sin. And God is coming in and saying, you want a sign? I'll send you a sign. I'm going to send you Jesus. He is the ultimate sign. And we see through the ministry of Jesus that the, the Jews of the time were like, show us the sign, show us the sign. And he's like, even if I raised from the dead, you wouldn't believe it. And of course he does. And a lot of them don't. But a lot of them do. And Jesus comes as the true, absolute, perfect proof that God is with us. And what's amazing is that there's a whole idea of the incarnation, right? It is, an, it is a mystery that when you peer into, you don't have to get far into the theology of the incarnation to just get lost in the glory and the wonder and the mystery of it. How does that work that Jesus is both fully man and fully God? It's like the Trinity. You can come in there and you can say, I know the Bible says this is true and I believe it wholeheartedly, Lord, help me understand. This is the work of theology. I believe, and in my belief, I seek understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. So as we look at this idea of Jesus being with us, the reality of the incarnation, that God himself was a baby, that he was born of this virgin Mary, this incredible sign. I mean, I'm, I'm not a reproductive scientist, but I know generally virgins don't have babies. And so this is what happens. Jesus comes to us. 
And he doesn't just come just with the name Jesus, right? Just with the name that I will save you from your sins. But he comes with this name and he says, I am with you. And then as you see this thread go throughout all the Bible, from, from Psalm 46 all the way to, to, to the Last Supper, when Jesus is sitting there and, and uh, Judas has already left and the guys are discouraged and he's giving this incredible picture of what's going to happen. And in John 14, he says, I'll send you this other counselor, this helper, and he will be with you forever. And then in the Great Commission, he's sitting there right before he ascends into heaven. And the last thing he says is, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. She will not leave you or forsake you. It's this incredible promise that we have, that we are not alone. Why? Why are we not alone? Because God himself has chosen to be with us. So if we start looking at Okay, let's say we accept that God is with us, okay? Say we say, all right, I believe that God is with us, like in my mind. Right, you say that, you say that Jesus comes, and the Bible says that, that he, he indwells us through the Holy Spirit, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that if two or three are gathered in his name, there he is with us. All over the New Testament, really all over the Bible, but in particular all over the New Testament, is the promise of the presence of God. He does not leave us. He is here. I don't have to run far to find him. All I have, he's here. So right now, God is here. And you might say, that's great. I don't feel like he's here. Okay? Good thing that our feelings do not determine reality. They don't. You can feel all kinds of things. And those feelings are real. But what I feel does not determine reality. Okay? If you want to be in the my feelings determine reality world, I love you. I'll, I'll be here when you are tired of that. Because it will wear you out. It, it, the only thing that it can do is wear a person out. We come to the word of God to say, all right, now I want my feelings to align with the truth. I want my feelings to respond to the truth of God's word. Feelings are big, beautiful, wonderful things that give life color and light. But they're supposed to follow adherence to the truth. So if we lay out what it is that it says, and it says that God is with us. Jesus says he's with us. He says the Holy Spirit is with us and will never leave us. He says, I'll be with you always. So I start thinking about, okay, what? As I was going through this process, I go, all right, so all right, so because God is with me, like fill in the blank. Because God is here, he says Emmanuel. Like if, if you look back, if you study religion, that is so not what other, quote, gods are like. Other gods are distant. They, they are not with us. Like here in the world, this is where we suffer, right? This is where the suffering happens. And where is God in the midst of the suffering? He's here. He's not there. He's always here. When I'm suffering, he enters our suffering with us. It's incredible. And he brings his comforting presence. I started looking at this question. All right, so get out on a notepad, right? Like, okay, because God is with me, what? And all of a sudden, my, my list got really, really, started to get really long. And I was like, okay, I got to rein this thing in, and we're never going to have like 97 things. I said, okay, so let's, let's shrink it down some. Because God is with me, I can what? Looking at application. So because God is with me, what difference does it make? I can do what? Well, if we look back at Isaiah 7, what does God tell Ahaz? He says, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart. And so I'm trying to make those things positive. So I'm going to be careful. I'm just going to say be calm. Because God is with us, I can be calm. You realize that? Be careful, keep calm. 
You've seen the little things like I just keep calm and carry on or whatever? The, the, the idea is that why does God's presence allow me to be calm? Well, when you have a little child who is losing their mind, what do they need and want? Their parent, right? Why? Well, because if all things are working well and the child is attached to their parent and all these things, then the parent brings comfort to the child. Just their presence. Like a baby doesn't understand. You're say, okay, now, now, child, now listen. You are allowing your emotions to really run your, your thinking instead of, it doesn't work out there for a baby. And the baby just needs mommy, right? Baby needs daddy. That's what, why? Because that's how God created Because where he's the, the, you're attached. And that attachment is the conduit through which comfort happens. So why is it that we can be calm because God is with us? Because he comforts us. And I cannot freak out. So the negative of be calm is don't freak out, right? My tendency, if you've been around me for very long, is when things happen, I will, uh, I will tend to freak out. Not, not always. I'm learning. Learned over the past, but still learning. Don't freak out. And that is my number one rule of, of, of parenting with my children is rule number one is don't panic, right? Because if you panic, game over. Like you can't do anything else. Once you panic, you stop thinking, you're done. You're in the plane, plane crashing, you're panicking, boom. Okay, whatever. You're in a car crash, something goes wrong, you don't have your homework, you break a pencil, don't panic. And that's what God is telling Ahaz here. It's like, don't, don't panic. Instead, be careful and keep calm. So he tells him, I'm with you, so be calm. So because God is with me, I can be calm. If you've ever looked at a lake or an ocean during a storm, what's it look like? Choppy, right? Why? It's getting pushed around. The wind is blowing up the water, shoving waves on top of each other. Have you ever woken up early in the morning and looked at a, this, a beautiful placid lake like glass? What effect does that have on you? have a calming effect? Why do you think that is? Because God made us that way. There's a reason that he takes the sheep to still waters in Psalm 23. He's not like, I'm going to take you to this crazy, raising, torrential whirlpool. Drink up, sheepy sheep. It's like, no, I would scare the sheep. So he brings us to this place where the water is still. And so when we look at still waters, we are calmed. Well, let me just say that there's something better than quiet waters. And it's a quiet spirit that comes from knowing that God is with you. He is the one who can. Remember what Jesus did in the boat? While everyone else is going crazy and they think they're going to drown? He takes a nap. Why? Because he trusts his father. And he knows that they're going to be fine. And when he, he gets up to them and he says, Oh, ye of little faith, why are you freaking out? And then he tells the storm, Hush now. And the storm hushes. That's who's with us. So be calm. The next thing he says is, uh, don't be afraid. So I'm going to switch that and make it positive and make it be fearless. There's a lot of fun words for fearless, right? Like, like dauntless and intrepid. Those are great words. Like be intrepid. Um, any fan of um, Calvin and Hobbes knows the intrepid spaceman's biff. It's one of the greatest side comics of all time. But anyway, be fearless. Okay. Why is it that God being with me means I can be fearless? Well, who is he? Who is the God who is with you? If I was walking and I was in a bad part of town, and I'm trying to think of somebody, you know, if I think of someone who can keep me safe, like, a, like SEAL Team 6, right? If I'm walking in a bad part of town and SEAL Team 6 is with me, honestly, I'm not going to worry because 
those guys, I mean, they're going to keep you safe. <laughs> like, they could keep me safe if I was, like, walking through a bad neighborhood in Somalia. They could probably keep me safe walking through a bad neighborhood in Oklahoma City. Why would I have confidence in them? Well, because of who they are. Like, they're really good at what they do, which is kill bad guys, keep good guys safe, right? That's hopefully what they're planning to do and training to do is keep bad guys from hurting good guys. That's what they're good at. What is God good at? Everything. He's good at everything. That includes keeping you safe. That includes whatever you're afraid of. So what are you afraid of right now? Jenny and I, honestly, we have a lot of fear with, with our kids' schooling right now for our youngest two. And because, in case you haven't noticed, the world is broken, and sending your kids into school means you're sending them into the world. It keeps us up at night. Why? Because it matters. What, what fear do you have? I doubt it's some sort of aimless, random fear that has no consequences. Otherwise, you wouldn't be afraid. You're not afraid of, you know, do your shoes match? Or you're not afraid of, what are you going to eat for breakfast? Probably not. Hopefully you're, hopefully you're not afraid of breakfast. What is it that you fear? I'm telling you that because God is with you, you can be fearless walking into that. So whether Jenny and I, whatever we end up deciding, it's going to cost us something, right? It's either going to cost us a bunch of money or it's going to cost us like a total change in lifestyle. Whatever happens, we do not have to be afraid. I can be fearless. Next thing I'm going to say where it says, because, uh, excuse me, keep calm, don't, be, don't lose heart or be courageous. And I'm going to switch that to, instead of be fearless, to be bold. So fearlessness is this idea of I will not be paralyzed by the thing that terrifies me. Boldness is what am I going to do now? So there is fearlessness, which says, okay, the thing that is binding me, the thing that's keeping me from living out like God wants me to live because I'm afraid of this instead of trusting God, I no longer be afraid. Now what do I do? And that's where you need boldness. So not only can you be calm, can you be fearless, but you can be bold. In whatever the thing is that you are afraid God being with you means that you can be bold walking into it, whether or not that's a, a, a board meeting, whether or not that is a going to talk to your neighbor, whether or not that is addressing a marriage that is hurting, whether or not it's talking to a kid who's wandered from the Lord, whether or not it is uh, going and talking to the principal at your kid's school and asking them really hard questions, you can be bold. You can walk across the street to your neighbor and be bold and saying, hey, my name's Brandon, I just want to say hello and I want to uh, know you and invite you into our home. Um, we're having, we'd like to have you for dinner or for lunch or breakfast or whatever works for you. Can you, when can you come over? What works for you? We're anytime. We're great. Be bold. It's okay. Maybe you've got to talk to a family member who doesn't know the Lord. And you're like, I think I'm supposed to talk to them about Jesus, but I'm afraid. Guess what? Welcome to being a human. Humans live in fear because there's lots of things to worry about. That's why God says be fearless. That's why God says be bold. So that whatever it is that God is calling you to do, you can be bold in it. So it leads me to two other things that are not directly out of the text, but I think this third one here kind of combines calm, fearness, and, and boldness, fearlessness and boldness. And that is this. I want you to be disruptive. So there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis at Amir Christianity. The reason I say be disruptive, I'm going to explain it in just a second. Because what does it look like if a group of people are, are, are calm, fearless, and bold? Like gospel-hearted people. Well, they're going to mess things up in this world. Because let me tell you, the world is broken, and we live in it. So C.S. Lewis says this, Enemy-occupied territory. 
That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that language, right? The Bible uses lots of war language, right? Battle language. You think about it in C.S. Lewis's time, right? You had the Germans and they had to go behind enemy lines and they would go and they would blow stuff up, right? They would, they would not go in there and like hug the Germans. They would blow up rail lines. They would destroy ammo depots so that when the other guys were fighting, the enemy would not be able to fight effectively. So what Lewis says is he goes, we've been called to take great in a, part in a great campaign of sabotage. We're supposed to be disruptive to what the world and the devil are doing disruptive, not conducive to it, right? We're not supposed to go along with the flow. Like if you've ever watched that, uh, the, the show The Chosen, the Little Fishies, the intro to that show, the Little Fishies are swimming one way, they change, uh, they, they're white and dark and they change light, whatever, and they start swimming the other way. We're supposed to swim against the stream of what the world and the devil are doing. Us going to the park last weekend and uh, having tacos and and the Kona ice truck and eating a bunch of popsicles and being out there. Believe it or not, from our perspective as leaders of the church, it was not just to stuff our kids full of popsicles. It was actually an act of war. Do you realize that? It was an act of disruptive. It was a part of the disruptive campaign that we want to have in this neighborhood. God has us here as the Vine Community Church in this neighborhood on purpose. On purpose. Purpose does something. Purpose means mission. He has us here on mission to do something. To do what? To love God, to love people, and to follow Jesus in this neighborhood. Where do you live? God has you there on purpose. Do you know that? Are you aligned and walking with the purpose for which he has you there? He did not plant you in your house or your apartment or in your townhome or your condo or wherever you live. He does not have you there willy-nilly on an accident. He is sovereign over all things, and he has you where he has you on purpose. Are you aligning yourself and living according to the purpose for which he has you there? Are you even asking the question, Lord, why am I here? Why do I live in this house on this street at this time? You know that no other event in history is happening right now, as it is happening right now. You, in the place that you're at, in the time that you're at, with the people that you're at, is unique in all of history. You understand that? God has you here on purpose. So I want you to be disruptive of the work of the devil, of the work of the world, of the work of the flesh. If we just sit by and just let things happen, what good does that do? You know, the point of Christianity is not just for us to just be saved. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, great, now you're saved. You know what I'm going to commission you to do? Not go out and just be saved. I'm going to commission you to go and tell every human on the planet about me. And I want you to baptize them in my name, and I want you to teach them what I've said. Oh, and by the way, while you do that, I am with you. Why does he say that? Because he knows that it will be hard. Because anything that is disruptive, stirring, upsetting to who? To those who like things the way they are. Do you like things the way they are in this world today? I don't either. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and be a jerk. You hear me say this a bunch of times, right? Don't go be a jerk. Whether on, in, in any sh- way, shape, or form, the one thing that Christians should never be known as, actually, there's a long list of things, but what I'm talking about right now, please don't be a jerk. Oh, my goodness. So much damage hasn't been done by Christians being jerks. 
Jesus was never a jerk. You realize that? He was firm where he needed to be firm. He was never a jerk. He was never, he never dishonored people. He always honored people. So in, in whatever way that God is calling you to disrupt things, please be kind. There's nothing you can add to because God is with me, I can be kind. But I want you to be disruptive. We're behind enemy lines right now. And God's calling us to this great work of sabotage. And I, wanna, I want you to uh, flip a switch in your mind about how you view life. It's the reason if the map is upside down, okay? I want you to be disoriented when you see it. I want you to see it and think, what's wrong with the map? And I want you to ask the questions, what's wrong with my thinking? And how do I need to align myself with what is true? I want us to walk out into this world seeing it as, as upside down as it is and engaging it with the light and the love of the gospel. So the other thing is, the final point I'm going to make here is uh, because of, of God is with me, I can. And this is kind of coming out of just my own personal walk with the Lord this week. And it is that because God is with me, I can be, I guess I'm going to say, happy. What? Why are you saying happy? You're like all this war and stuff and metaphor and fighting and disruption and let me read some quotes. I'm going to read three quotes. That's two. Three quotes. Three quotes. And just, dude, my fingers aren't working right. So they're by Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Riley, and John Owen, Puritans. These are, this is a bit of a uh, uh, historical, goes from a ways back. All of these are people who you've probably read. When I think of Charles Spurgeon, I don't necessarily think of this jocular, very, I mean, like one of the greatest preachers of all time, right? Here's what he says. Charles Spurgeon says this. God made human beings as he made his other creatures to be happy. They are in their right element when they are happy. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? You know, you're in your right element when you're happy. By the way, as a quick aside, I'm not saying that you can't be sad. That would be silly. Uh, sadness is part of grieving in a fallen world. Lamentation is part of being human. However, God created us to be happy. Not just like, I'll be happy then, but happy now. Second thing, J.C. Riley says this, true religion was never meant to make men melancholy. This is coming from a guy who, uh, I struggle with melancholy. If you don't know, it's just kind of, I struggle, sometimes I get blue and sometimes I get grumpy. I'm not always happy. But religion was never meant to make men melancholy. On the contrary, it was intended to increase real joy and happiness. Isn't that crazy? My was John Owen. Listen to this. The first act of divine sovereign pleasure concerning us, people don't write like this anymore, but the first act of divine sovereign pleasure, so what God pleasured to do over us, concerning us, was this. The choosing of us from all eternity into holiness and happiness. See that wonderful tie together? Holiness and happiness. Like, Grace is this beautiful tension in holiness and happiness. Licentiousness goes to one side that says, all that matters is that I'm happy. Doesn't matter anything else. All that matters is my happiness. Legalism comes up and says, all that matters is your holiness. Grace comes up and says, both of those things matter. You're supposed to be holy and happy. Not that you're supposed to be like you're doing it wrong if you're not, but that because God is with you, you can be. Do you realize that? That may mean that you have to fight for your happiness. Welcome to being human. It may mean that you have to fight for your holiness. Welcome to being human. Who is with you in the fight? Colossians gives us a great picture as to who this is. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul wrote a bunch of great things. Um, 
This little passage in Colossians is a pretty, pretty good one. Who is it that is with you as you go about your time, as you seek to be happy, disruptive? Colossians 1.15 says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. This is Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see something? Is it together? Thank Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him everything so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He might be over all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You were once alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight and without blemish, and free from accusation. That's who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. He holds together everything from the most vast expanse. If you've seen the pictures from that, whatever the cool telescope is out there, taking pictures of galaxies billions of miles away, he holds that together. At the, the quark level of atoms and all those things, he holds all that together. You and me, our marriage, he holds that thing together. This church, he holds it together. The chair you're sitting on, he holds the chair together. Jesus holds it all together. That includes your happiness. That includes your capacity to be bold. That includes your capacity to be disruptive in this world. Who is it that holds your life together? If it's you, it's, I'm just going to tell you it's not going to work for long. And if it already hasn't fallen apart, it's going too soon. Only Jesus can truly hold a disciple's life together. I'm going to end with one quote from, uh, from Major Ian Thomas. And uh, he's a great, great author. Loved him. He's, if you've read any of Ian w., uh, Major Ian Thomas's books, uh, they're great. I encourage you to read them. Talking about the, uh, the early church, the first disciples. And he says this. They were incorrigibly happy, utterly unafraid, and almost always in trouble. Utterly, what do you say? Incorrigibly happy. So I want us to be a church that is incorrigibly happy. Why? Look at who we have. We have Jesus. Like, not just the Jesus that people say Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself is with you. We should be incorrigibly happy. He says that they were utterly fearless. What do you have to be afraid of, honestly? If I was to say, I want you to go home today, I want you to skip lunch, and I want you to walk over and knock on every door of your neighbor's house, and I want you to say, hey, do you know that God loves you and sent his son to die for you? And you would think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Really? Do they know? If they don't know, who's going to tell them? Because you're their neighbor. I'm not. You are. If you can see someone's house from your front porch, they need Jesus. And if they don't know, you better tell them. And if they do know him, I want you to... Involve them in the fellowship of what your God's doing in your house and get them praying for your neighbors who don't know him. I want you to be bold. I want you to be known as being just absolutely crazy people. And then I want you to get in trouble. They're almost always in trouble. 
wouldn't you love to be a church full of people who are always in trouble for the gospel? Like, oh man, I'm, I don't really want you to go to jail, okay? And I'm right in a time and a place right now where people are going to jail for the gospel. But guess what? It's happened in the past. It's happening now and just not here. And it could very well happen here in the future. I would love to be a church that is constantly in trouble because we walk with the God who indwells us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are just wonderful. I can't believe that you promised to be with us and that you say that you live within us. That we can come to you and we can say, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That you are a very life that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us. And because you are with us, that we can be bold, that we can be calm, that we can be fearless, that we can be disruptive, that we can be happy. Why? Because you are with us. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to, to live out the truth that you're with us, to embody it in how we speak and live and breathe and how we go to work, and how we wake up in the morning, and how we plan our day, and how we parent, and how we uh, are married, and how we deal with our parents, and how we deal with our, our, our family, and how we talk to our neighbors, and the things we say online, and how we send an email, and how we make a phone call, and what we eat, and what we drink, and how we laugh, and how we don't. I pray that this truth that you are with us, Emmanuel, the great source of all of our hope, would cause us to live lives that make the world think we're crazy and that we would be people so in tune with the God who indwells us that we would just resound with the chorus of heaven that praises your name and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and that our lives and our hearts and our minds would be in tuned with that song that goes on forever. Help us worship you right now as we respond to you, Lord Jesus, help us to lay before you any fear that we have to embrace the reality that you're with us and to walk out, as Gary has, the truth that you've taught us in your word and experience the great life and freedom that comes from that. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. So stand and sing together. Let's uh, remind ourselves who Jesus is, what he's done, and what that means.
So now you got to go out here and live this thing out, right? doesn't matter what I say or what you experience in here. You have a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday and a Thursday and a Friday. You have a whole week in front of you. Go and live it like God is with you because he is. And go 